Tomorrow Into Today, a podcast dedicated to sharing the knowledge and language of artificial intelligence in the Department of Defense. Join us as we discuss the passion projects for some of today's brightest minds and how artificial intelligence is being cultivated, procured, and delivered throughout the U.S. government. Be prepared to learn how artificial intelligence has become a part of everyday life and is working to support and further government missions. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of AI Proficiency Turning Tomorrow Into Today. I'm Ariel Moore, the producer of this podcast. Again, today we have Bonnie Evangelista from the CDAO helping us gather relevant knowledge and expertise from our guest today, Dr. Mona Sloan, sociologist, artificial intelligence and society research assistant professor and researcher at New York University. So thank you for joining us today. Bonnie, the floor is yours. Welcome, Mona Sloan. Thank you so much for talking with us. I've got, thank you so much I've, for having me. Of course, I've got Mike Eider also here to help facilitate our conversation moving forward. Where are you calling us from? I am calling you from Brooklyn, New York. Oh, so tell us a little bit about you. Who do you work for and what do you do? Sure. So I am a sociologist and I am currently based at New York University at our Tandon School of Engineering, where I am a research assistant professor in the Department of Technology, Culture and Society. And I'm also a senior research scientist with the NYU Center for Responsible AI here at and we attend. And I also wear a couple of other hats because I love to do a bunch of things at the same time and look at, you know, problems and issues holistically. So I also direct a program at our School of the Arts at Tisch, which looks at the intersection of technology equity and the climate emergency. And I'm a fellow at the Institute for Public Knowledge, where I've been running a public speaker series called Co-opting AI for almost four years now. Wow. So there's a lot in there. What what would you say is your favorite role out of everything you just told us about? That's a great question, Bonnie. So the way in which I usually answer that and answer that for myself is that my role is a sociologist. So my professional identity as a sociologist ties all of these together in a meaningful way. It's all about the exploration of how the social is affected by design and technology and vice versa. Um, And I just explore that through the different avenues and the different hats that I wear. But I am very happy here at the Tennis School of Engineering in my department, at the center, in at Tisch and the IPK. So I I couldn't give you a favorite, but it's all tied together by a curiosity about the social. Mike, I saw your, the wheels turning. What are you thinking? It's like, so that's fantastic. You you talk a little bit about, you gave a plug to your organizations like, yep, I'm happy right here. I'm, I'm, I'm fine where I'm at. That's that's a little sociology, but you, you talked a little bit about technology equity, right? What does that mean? That's an interesting combination of two words. What, is, what does that mean? Thank you for that question, Mike. The way in which I think about that is that I actually need another word to make a sense of it, which is inequality. So inequality and the kind of intersection of design and inequality is where I kind of conceptually come from as a sociologist, what I kind of focus my PhD work on. And that is kind of the idea that design, i.e. the kind of solving of problems by way of coming up with something new is something that is really 
integral to what it means to be human. That also always comes with various forms of oppression, social stratification, and discrimination. And so design and inequality is something that is deeply entangled. And when we think about technology as a design product or a design outcome, or even just a design process, and we think about equity, then in my mind, that is about addressing inequality that comes from design, if that makes sense. So if you will, design inequality is kind of the problem and technology inequity is something that we can pursue in order to address the discriminatory effects that can come from various designs and the effects that come from inequality and social stratification. Can you give an example? Uh, Yeah, I can give you plenty of examples. So the way in which we design cities, for example, is a good one. You know, redlining and how it kind of translates still into current uh, urban design strategies, the ways in which public transport is designed. We can think about product design. Um, We can think about financial products, for example, and various forms of risk assessment that happens as part of deploying those financial products. There was a famous case a couple of years ago with the Apple credit card, where an Apple executive applied for the credit card and got it. And his wife, even though she had a higher credit score didn't. We can think about that in the context of medical products. An example that I sometimes use in my classroom is actually the speculum, which is a a tool that OBGYNs use to open the cervix and keep it open. And it's very painful and unpleasant. And that is a tool that is designed for the doctor with the doctor in mind. And that is a design that hasn't actually changed very much over the last a century. And so we can also think about that in the context of digital technologies and design. And I guess that's something we'll talk about further in this conversation. So I'm going to leave that cue with you for now. Yeah, this reminds me, Mike, of our conversation with Dr. Brooke Ellison, when she kind of highlighted for people in her community, she's disabled, she's paralyzed from the neck down, and how there's, there's, I think there's a lot of policy yeah, she she basically had, she's continuing to drive her wheelchair with suction. I mean, we are in 2022 and she still has to blow hard, blow soft, suck hard, suck soft in order to move it left and right, moving it forward. And it's like, you know, there has to be a better way for something like that. And you talked a little about the speculum, right? The people have been, been you know, it's something that hasn't changed, right? So what's the driver for some of that stuff that to change? Like what is, so why, why, why haven't some of those things changed? And I want to delve into some of your city stuff a little bit later too. So that, that sounded very interesting, but why, why, why hasn't, why hasn't it changed? I think that has a lot to do with who has power to initiate and sustain change. And the issue is that Folks who are not in a position of power are not necessarily the ones who make design decisions, who make decisions about what designs get put into the market, about what designs are valuable to people in various ways, not just in terms of monetary value. And they are not necessarily at the table generally. And so I think that is one issue. Another issue is that we kind of have a tendency to design for 
the average or you know whoever falls into a normal distribution and edge quote-unquote edge cases that's where that term comes from don't are not included um, in our general thinking is and that because so, they're not commercially viable or just not thought of because uh or or something else I think it's about critical mass, but I think it's also about the way in which we use statistical thinking in our like lay theories about markets and, as you say, commercial viability, about what the average society looks like. It is just, yeah, it's a way in which we think about society and people is in terms of averages, in terms of classification, in terms of categorization of people, of things, of situations, and so on. It's actually a, a really interesting line of thought um, in science and technology studies is the study of how classification and categorization play a role in society and are kind of the engines, if you will, of bureaucracies that can then sustain oppression and power imbalances. So that's just something we kind of we kind of do. I will say, though, if, if you let me um, add this last bit, that the disability community specifically is a is a community of innovation. There rarely is there a, a critique of the design, a meaningful critique of design that does not um, in some way come out of the disability community, um, because folks with disabilities are tinkering with technologies, with designs, because they need to in order to participate in society. And so I encourage everybody to delve into that a little more and explore that community a little more and that activism, that scholarship a little more. There is, for example, the Crypt Technoscience Manifesto that was published that talks about that. Um, so I think that, that it is particularly upsetting when the disability community is not acknowledged as the community of innovators, I would say. Yeah, that was super interesting, our conversation with her, because she 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 brought up this question. It's like, why is it that, you know, people without the disability are making rules for the people with the disability? So it's like one thing to know, oh, yeah, I think I, it's like when you get married, right? Oh, you think you know what it's like to get married or you think you know what it's like to have kids. And you're like, oh, yeah, I know, I know. But you don't until you experience it, and each of those experiences is unique. And it's it, and you talked a little bit earlier about you know classification, right? There's this focus around classification. Well, that's that's a big part of AI, isn't it? It's classifying the different things so that you can see the patterns. And so you, I mean, how does that classification of societies to make bureaucracies, like you had talked about, correlate into classification for AI? That. That's a great question. And that's actually one I love, you know, to ask my students about halfway through the semester, uh, usually. So the short answer to that, in my opinion, is that AI systems are, um, as you outlined just now, Mike, classification categorization systems on steroids, if you will. The whole kind of idea, and I'm really simplifying this now, is to 
identify patterns in large data sets, use these patterns to train a model so that model can then in the future make decisions based on these patterns. So how likely is somebody to default on their credit? Um, how likely is somebody to succeed in the company? How likely are my students to uh, graduate, you know, in the top 5% uh, percentile? How likely am I to get to die of heart disease as you know, basis for making decisions about health insurance premiums and so on. So the the social function of classification is kind of what is solidified in AI systems. And it it doesn't really matter if you have a system that you feed with labeled data where you actually tell the system, this is, you know, man, woman, uh, sick, healthy, credit worthy, not credit worthy, or whether you actually use unlabeled data whereby the system essentially learns um, about patterns in society by itself. There's actually a, a really good example in the AI hiring space, which is one of the areas I currently conduct research on. Famous case a couple of years ago, Amazon had an internal tool that was deployed to predict the success uh, of employees in the system. This was unsupervised learning, so unlabeled data. Um, so the system kind of taught itself or kind of picked up on the fact that if your name is, I think it was Kevin or Greg or something, a white male kind of Christian kind of name, that was a proxy for success. And the, anything with the word, you know, the word women was a proxy for not being successful in the company. So for example, somebody who was the captain of the women's soccer uh, soccer team at college doesn't matter how how good that team was and how amazing of an athlete that would kind of be at the bottom uh, of the pile um, and so that's how kind of classification and categorization becomes solidified in AI systems which then affect how we organize society because AI is very deeply embedded into that process wherever we go yeah it's even embedded in some of the the different um, and again, I'm not an AI technologist either. So you, you're a sociologist. I'm just a guy that likes to learn different things. But it's when you look at the algorithms that on your social media or your algorithms on even the, the like your music selection, right? Hey, we think you'd like this or we think you'd like that. There's like this cycle of reinforcement that happens. Oh, you liked this. Then you want more, and it, it and it and it drives you into more things because the algorithm is like, hey man, you like this before you like that. Similar, you know, my name's Mike. It's not Kevin, so I guess I would be, you know, I'd, I'd be at a, a disadvantage. But you know, there's is there some sort of a thing that this algorithm would latch onto, or the the word woman, or the word like, how does that how does that work in layman's terms? How does that work? That is a very hard question to answer, and that is actually a question that even technologists tend to not be able or willing to answer, because what we're dealing with here is the quote-unquote black box problem, whereby the calculations are so com complex um, that even the people who built the tool once the tool is out in the world and does things and interacts dynamically with ever-emergent social conditions, they can't even understand why it's making certain decisions over others. The black box problem has been 
kind of depicted as a problem of complex math, but critics rightfully so have said, well, the problem is not exclusively that we're dealing with complex math here and the fact that these systems interact dynamically with changing so with changing social environments, but also because we have, for example, trite secrecy that kind of puts a boundary around how much we can actually know. We also, that Frank Pasquale has written a great book about that called The Black Box Society. He's a legal scholar. The other thing that we need to be mindful of, and Mike, you just mentioned social media, content recommendation systems, is that we're no longer dealing with, you know, one human interacts with one AI, quote unquote AI, and something happens. We have multiple people interacting with various systems that also interact with each other. So the Twitter content recommendation algorithm, that's not just one algorithm. That's a whole bunch of models that interact dynamically with each other. And so for that reason, it is you know very, very hard to kind of have, have a clear understanding of, of kind of the causal, any kind of causal relationships that occur. However, when we think about how we can actually regulate these systems, which is something that, of course, is uh, important to regulators in the United States and Europe and, and many, many, many other places, is that ultimately it comes down to the effects. So what can we actually see happens uh, when AI systems get deployed into society, into high-stakes situations? Do we see kind of systemic discrimination that happens, whereby, for example, a class of people has a harder access to the labor market or has a harder time um, getting access to benefits or to credit. And so when we can, once, once we kind of can establish that, then we can use our current regulatory tools to mitigate that, but we are not quite there yet. So that's going to be like a hot a hot topic to watch over the next months and years are these kinds of cases. There are a couple going on in Michigan, for example, a class action lawsuit um, against um, the state, actually, because they used an automated fraud detection system that um, caused many, many people to unjustly use lose their bene benefits. But we'll, we'll see kind of more happening around the question around effects rather than what's in the black box, if you know what I mean. That's super interesting because earlier we talked to a gentleman, his name was Igor, and he explained some of the things to us. He's like, you know, when you're born, right, you have intelligence, but then you're, you, you learn by what you see and that's labeled data. It's like, oh, that's what that is. And that's what that is. And he says, but even as you, as you mature, you still can't really tell yourself why you do some things. He's, and he, he brought up, he's like, I know chocolate eclairs are bad for me. All the data supports I shouldn't eat that chocolate eclair, yet I eat it. And so when, because when, I had talked to him about the black box AI problems, like, oh, well, you, you know, you don't know why. And he's like, why? How would you be able to explain AI any more than you'd be able to explain a person? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I know Igor, so I I can um, awesome. imagine um, his face when he talked about the chocolate eclairs. I mean, I think ultimately the thing is that 
humans aren't machines and vice versa. Um, and I, I think that this is an interesting stance to take to compare human learning with machine learning and, and, and one that has actually fueled a lot of innovation. And I know Igor is actually hands-on involved in that and has for many, many, many years pushed out the boat um, on natural language processing. But personally, I think that there are very high stakes involved with AI because the decision-making um, that flows from that learning is designed to not be one-on-one -on -one or one you know, to 10 or 15 or whatever, many people. AI fundamentally is about automation and it is about uh, increasing productivity and it is about scaling. It's a scaling technology. And so I think that for that reason, we need to think really carefully about issues around liability. For example, who is actually responsible when something goes wrong in AI and where do we actually locate that liability? And that that has been you know, a problem for many years now. That's not that's not new because automated systems have been around, right? Madeline Claire Alish, who's an anthropologist, has a, proposed a wonderful term called the moral crumple zone, whereby um, she describes how when something goes wrong and, for example, an accident happens, such as the accident that happened in Arizona, whereby a woman pushing a bike uh, across the street was killed, by an autonomous vehicle a couple of years ago. When that happens and kind of the system did it, we still need a human to stand in for that morally and legally for what went wrong. So we're not necessarily, I think, equipped in terms of the regulations, the way we think about responsibility to deal with the issues that come up, especially if we're looking at AI as a scaling technology where rabbi harm really is not just, you know, one person hurting another person, but the whole idea is to scale. And so harm scales immediately, affects many, many people. So when you talk a little bit about the scale of harm, the, the liability, you're looking at it from the other side, there's the trust of the AI, right? So how can you trust it to, to, to know that things are accurate so that you can make a decision that you would be held liable for? That's one of the challenges, you know, in, in corporate America, as well as the, the DOD, right? When we make decisions in, in the military, lives are on the line. And so how would you be able to and this is a doozy of a question because let's just get into it, right? Um, you know, how, so a commander out on the field um, who has to make a decision with the lives of his or her soldiers and airmen and sailors on the line, and they get this information, right? This, 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 oh, the AI says this, or the, you know, whatever tool I have, like, how does that person trust that AI from an ethical perspective? What are the things they should be thinking about when they're looking at that to make sure, okay, is this, is this, is this okay to make this decision? Or what, what, what do they need to do to trust the AI? Ooh, that is the biggest of all questions, Mike. And I, I should- We don't mess around on this podcast. No, you are, you're sure not. Um, let me preface this by saying I'm not, um, an expert in 
AI that is being deployed in the military context and kind of technological innovation on the battlefield, sure. if you will. However, what I can talk about is the question of trust, as you said, and also the question of professional discretion or discretionary decision-making in the professions, which is something I think we don't talk about enough. What is important to understand is that AI, even though it is a scaling technology, gets deployed in very specific situations and, and is typically designed or at least intended, not always designed, but at least intended to support professional discretion or decision-making. So how should we treat this patient? Does this Is this patient likely to develop sepsis? How What's the next decision on the battlefield? What is the next decision, um, you know, in student admissions at a university when it comes to applicants coming in? Um, Generally, what is good for professional discussion uh, or uh, discretionary decision-making is when folks know a little bit more about how the system actually arrives, at least roughly, at its recommendation. So what are the, for example, what are the parameters that are included? What plays a role? I can give you uh, an example again from hiring. When a, uh, a recruiter uses a job platform to source candidates, that is partially AI driven. It would be good for the recruiter to know what, uh, what does the AI take into account when it creates these rankings. Not necessarily even how much, right? Is there like 30% skill and 50% location and what have you, but what plays a role? What also is, I think, helpful to know is what is the model optimizing for, right? Are we optimizing for, let's stick with our, our examples, are we optimizing uh, for basically keeping the ER as empty as possible and getting people out of the ER? Or are we optimizing for um, keeping people in the ER because it's, you know, we make more money uh, because when we have patients in the ER? Are we optimizing for to take in as many students as possible or just, you know, the ones that are closest, uh, reside the closest, or are we actually optimizing for students from abroad because we have, uh, we can charge them higher fee tuition. So those are kind of questions that I think should be, and Bonnie, that's something I think we can should be asked in procurement. What what are the parameters? What is the optimization? Um, and then the third one certainly is what is the training data? Um, if we have, you know, we always talk about AI bias and often we talk about AI bias in terms of biased training data that has to be part of the conversation. If, if we have trained a model on a totally skewed data set, then we can't reasonably expect that this model actually works well in a much broader population, for example. So, but these are Mike, these are kind of questions that don't necessarily help a commander in the battlefield. Those are questions that kind of the, the organization needs to take on much earlier, you know, much more upstream uh, and then train folks um, who are the actual operators of these systems so that they can make better and more informed 
decision on the spot. I think that is what constitutes trust. That is a super good explanation. I took some notes. I'll, I'll be, I'll be using some of your stuff with some of our leaders because, you know, with anything you have to trust it, right? You have to know it, you know, how does the system arrive at its decision? Who plays or what plays a role in those decisions? What are the little parameters that it's looking for? What is it optimizing for? And what was the training data set up? I think is the crux of what you just said. Um, and those are absolutely foundational to, to getting someone to, to, to understand something that they can then use when lives are on the line. That's super helpful. I wanted to highlight, I, I think what we're saying is you, you can't trust it if you don't know what it is. And you've kind of given us a framework to un, asking good questions to start to understand what are these things that we're buying if it does have an artificial intelligence component to it or, or technology that's driving it. Are there any other ethical things you're finding either in your research or, or in, in the conversations that you're having with your students that are just, you think there's, it's, it's just worth highlighting here in our conversation today? Yeah, absolutely, Bonnie. Thank you for that question. And I always appreciate the, stu the student plug. I also am deeply committed to making sure that discussions around AI design, AI procurement, AI deployment include those who are going to be affected by the technologies. So a broad stakeholder engagement, you always need that, but you specifically need that in the context of AI, because if we take the black box problem at face value and say, okay, this is, this is complex math at, at play, but let's stipulate we're actually saving a lot of money and you know resources by automating this particular task. And so for that reason, we're willing to purchase a system we're not, it, you know, where the math is too complex for us to actually understand how it's, how it's doing its job. Because of that, the actual um, effects, and we spoke about this earlier, are most acutely felt by those who are using the technology because they have to as part of their job or by those who are affected. So that can be, again, soldiers on the battlefield, that can be um, either side, civilians. Um, if you think about that in the context of education, that is administrators, professors, students, you know, a swath of folks who can kind of very acutely feel these, we call these AI harms when they occur. So it is kind of hypocritical of us to say, oh, we have the black box problem, but we're not going to do stakeholder engagement if stakeholder, if stakeholders is where you actually understand the potential harms, if you know what I mean. So I think that is something that is very, very important. We don't necessarily have a blueprint yet for what really meaningful and productive and non-extractive stakeholder engagement could look like partially because AI is a system that is built on big data, um, which necessarily is extracted from people. So we, we need to kind of sit and see a little bit where important advancement in stakeholder engagement, and a couple of companies are doing that, public uh, institutions are doing that, where, where those lead, but that would be one 
that I would highly recommend. And I know that that's particularly important also in procurement. Yes, it's very difficult in procurement because when you were talking about some of the considerations we should have, that that means we have to draw a line essentially and say like something maybe is not desirable and something is desirable from an AI perspective. We don't have those answers to your point. Like we're not, um, I think we're starting, starting to have the conversations and, and maybe start to interact with the stakeholders you're talking about, but um, there's still very much a big question mark from a procurement perspective on how to be handling these types of technologies. Yeah, I'm, um, I believe that I, um, in 2021, I ran a project on AI procurement together with Ruman Chowdhury, who used to be at Twitter and the IEEE. And we hosted a bunch of roundtables with procurement and AI experts from uh, the US and Europe. And one of the outcomes of those conversations was, and the recommendations that we uh, proposed in our primer, was that there are various narrative traps, so stories that we tell each other about technology, about processes, about people that actually hinder kind of innovation that is necessarily uh, necessary in procurement to address the challenges of AI specifically. And so one was, for example, we must engage the public, which is right what I just spoke about. But engagement can mean very, very different things to different people. So it is actually important to define that initially and to what end engagement is set up um, and undertaken. And it is also important to consider what communities have historically been excluded from engagement, right? So that could be... Mm. That, you know, you can think about that within the organization in terms of, oh, you know, you have the procurement experts who are maybe a little bit siloed and are tasked with, quote unquote, just buying the things, right? Um, but right. then you have the data scientists that are part of the agency, and then you have the folks in the field uh, and all of that. And so thinking about what engagement means just inside an agency can be very helpful. Another narrative trap that came out of the sort of data analysis of that project was quote unquote, you must find simple definitions of X. So the kind of desire to always boil it down to the most simple kind of um, description of the problem or a description of how the technology would be used uh, in a certain context. That's not always the most productive way of thinking about AI because it is so complex and because it is emergent. There are a bunch of other narrative traps. I can I can send you the links. Um, another one, Bonnie, you may relate to is that, quote unquote, one incentive shared across all actors can initiate change. So the idea that we can just, you know, everybody should think ethically about AI. And of course, we can make AI procurement ethical that way is not necessarily uh, a, a helpful one and, and can be seen as a narrative. Uh, trap and so on. So I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it at that. But yeah, procurement is extremely important. I think I'm glad you're working on that in this context. Well, that's I can't say I'm making any strides on it, but we we definitely want to, and and it's hard to figure out you know what what's the next best step. Um, what direction do we go in? That's really interesting. What you were talking about that you did this big study, especially with targeted with procurement people, was it just private sector? procurement or was there any government 
procurement uh, competencies at the table as well? That was, it was focused on public procurement. So we had folks mostly from government agencies in Europe um, and the US. We had technologists, we had scholars, we had uh, very few people from, from corporate, but were included as well. And we had these roundtables and collected the data on the conversations, did research, and then wrote up the, the recommendations in, in the primer. And we have six tension points, um, and we have these narrative traps that I just spoke about. But the most important learning was that it is actually, or it might, we don't have the evidence yet, but it might actually be most productive to think about addressing the challenges of AI and procurement on a sort of organization level rather than coming up with very broad guidelines that cut across agencies. Mm. I think th those can kind of work in terms of, you know, anti-corruption and, you know, th th those kinds of things. But what seemed to be really coming through is that there are such distinct cultures within agencies, even with various procurement departments. Um, right. And it is more helpful potentially to think about how those can be leveraged and AI literacy can be built up as part of the practices and processes that these distinct entities already have in sustaining them rather than trying to mm -hmm. kind of break them open and connect them and then also teach them AI literacy if you know what I mean. And the primer was kind of trying to do that. It was trying to give these kind of tension points and narrative traps and kind of you know, four steps for change that can, you know, can be initiated and then hope that folks kind of run with that. That primer also will be a, uh, or is the basis for a uh, IEEE standard that is currently being developed. So hopefully that will also help. Um, what kind of standard? Um, so the the IEEE is the so the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, um, and they have various standards that they are the the professionals who are part of their association have to comply with. And so having an IEEE standard can can potentially be quite impactful because folks who are part of that association should comply. And so they are currently working on the AI procurement standard. I don't know uh -huh. when it's going to come out though. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm happy to connect you. Yeah, I would love to to even see what they're thinking about and see if there's yeah. a there's a you know a way if there's any not not just a connection point but you know is there things we can adopt that they're yeah. doing or thinking about. Absolutely. I've got a little bit of a I've got a little bit of an off topic question that I want to really ask you. So Bonnie, are you are you good with your line? Yeah. All right. So what are the social impacts of a tool like chat GPT? Mm. Ah, I was waiting for that to come around the corner and hit me. Um, right. <laughs> all right. So chat GPT. I think the jury is still out on that. We already have had systems, you know, natural language processing systems before that were integral to how we do things. You know, if you use a chatbot, 
whether that is as part of customer service or um, in HR as part of a large organization um, or, if, you know, natural language processing that you use to do your own writing. And then, you know, if you write in Google Docs, kind of a, the end of the sentence is suggested and he can just press enter so that kind of has been around what hasn't been around is this kind of full-on narrative of you know the, the interactive asking a question and then spitting spitting out text in that uh sense i think we have to be extremely careful with that we do know that chat gpt makes things up um, we do know that we actually as humans have to up our haha ai literacy game a little bit here um, and mm -hmm. learn rapidly how to actually distinguish facts from fiction, human written copy versus 100% machine written copy. That is, by the way, huge challenge that we currently have as professors. There was not a single department in the country, I can tell you, that did not have crisis meetings about that a couple of weeks ago in terms of detecting you know, when, when students actually plagiarize um, nature, which is obviously the the um, most important publications in the sciences came out, I think two or three weeks ago with an editorial text and outlined some rules saying, well, ChatGPT can actually be, cannot actually be a co-author, um, which was really interesting to see. So they set kind of the tone a little bit for, for academia in that sense. Um, that is all a very long-winded answer to say, well, we don't know yet, but we do know that there are, there are risks um, associated that, um, we know from the past and we will see um we will see what happens it would be you know interesting to see you know if the human curated text becomes a kind of luxury item you know ultimately whereby you know all machine written text that's you know anybody can can do that but you know something written by a human the human touch becomes becomes a luxury luxury thing so that becomes the artwork is the human written word. And then the other stuff is more, you know, more, more common. That's, that's fantastic. That's interesting. That makes my brain go crazy, but. Well, who's to say the machine's not creating art. Like this is the, I feel like the, the conundrum. Absolutely. The, um, and you know, there are, Again, various lawsuits that are currently going on that are trying to find an answer to that. Um, we should also say that art and artistic practice and creative practice has always been a socio-technical practice, right? When you paint a painting, you paint with a paintbrush. You know, like there are there's digital art. There's all you know that that's all all been around. I think again, what AI is doing here is, you know, harms aside for just a second really also testing the um, flexibility and strength of our legal system mm -hmm. and th things such as copyright and trade law, yeah. anti-discrimination law, of course, as well, right? W with with the harms that we're seeing. So I think that is, that I would say is distinctly AI is that it, it shows us where adjustments are needed and big questions are being asked, such as around creativity well said so mona any anything else on your mind that you want to leave the audience with before we part i want to leave the audience with a, a call for what i would call critical curiosity and 
the spirit of asking questions about technical systems and socio-technical systems. So how do these things work? Who came up with it? What are the assumptions that are operationalized here? And do so in a with a spirit of agency. We always kind of are, um, you know, by way of popular narrative told that we're all going to fall victims to automation eventually, and we have no agency and we, you know, can't really change things. And, you know, everything will happen to us, the, the good, the bad. Um, I don't think that that is a helpful stance. I think we all have a responsibility to be a little awake around these issues, ask questions, um, and engage in the conversations and demand, you know, transparency, demand that things are explained to us and demand recourse if that is what is warranted. So I would, that's why I would leave it. Awesome. Thank you so much for talking with us. I really appreciated your insight because I think there's not enough conversation around some of the social impacts and the ethics involved in these things we're, we're playing with when it comes to AI. So I really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much for having me. It was great fun. Thank you so much, Mona, for joining us today. I learned a lot from your presentation and I wanted to thank Bonnie again for keeping that conversation going and giving us all the information we needed out of today's episode. We hope to see everyone again in the next episode of AI Proficiency, Turning Tomorrow Into Today. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of AI Proficiency, Turning Tomorrow Into Day. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure to like, follow, and subscribe, and share this podcast within your network. These actions move mountains for our mission of sharing artificial intelligence knowledge. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week on our next episode of AI Proficiency, Turning Tomorrow Into Today.